You're listening to Center Church Podcast. At Center Church, we strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. You're about to hear a message from our pastor, Matthew Edwards. But before you do, we want to invite you to visit our website at centercharlotte.org. There you can sign up for our weekly emails and receive new content as we release it. Secondly, we want to invite you to visit our pastor's blog at matthewedwards.cc. And finally, if this podcast ministered to you in any way, go ahead and subscribe and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in and be blessed. Yeah, Leviticus. All right, there we go. Um, <laughs> thank you again. I really do. That, that means a lot to me. I really appreciate it. Um, what I was looking through in the basket, we were at the Christian bookstore the other day because they're closing and they had some books that I've wanted for a while, but I just couldn't grab because just at the time I was like, I don't need them because I have other books to read, but I really want them. And I didn't think Christina saw it. So those books specifically, because they're in the basket, that means clearly she saw it and she held on to it. So uh, that means a lot to me. So thank you. I I really do appreciate it. Um, But Jesus, you ready for him? All right, here we go. Leviticus chapter two. We're going to pick up on verse one in Leviticus chapter two. uh, And before I'm sorry, before we read verse one, let me explain real quick. In Leviticus chapters one through seven, God gives five different offerings. It takes five offerings to depict the one offering that Jesus made at the cross. And again, the reason why we're doing this, uh, the Lord said something to me a while back. Uh, and what I did was I went back and I started looking at the word offering, offering. And I started noticing. And in Ephesians chapter five, verse two, Paul says this. Christ offered himself up as a sacrifice and as a, do you know? Offering. It's all right. I'm, it's, it, there's no guest speaker today, so we're good. Uh, no. Christ offered himself as a sacrifice and as an offering. So that means in Paul's mind, there's an offering and there's a sacrifice. They're not exactly the same. And so from there, I started saying, okay, well, what's the difference between the two? And so I started studying, and out of that study came Leviticus chapter 1 through 7. Last week, we looked at the burnt offering. This week, we're going to look at the grain or the meal offering. Can you say meal? Meal. When you hear the word meal, what do you think of? Food, right? Food, something that you eat. And I'll just be honest, my first thought was to go back to uh, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, will live because of me. But the more I decided, you know what, Holy Spirit, I want you to lead my study. I don't want to come in knowing. I want you to lead the study. As I continue to study, I never ended up at John chapter 6. So, not saying that there is no connection. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying this morning you're in for something that's fresh, uh, that the Lord impressed on me, and I believe it's going to be... Exciting and good for you. So are you ready? Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1. The Lord says, when anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord or meal, uh, the the two words are interchangeable, obviously. He says, when anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. And he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, one of whom shall take it from his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense. And the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then he come to verse 3, he says, The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. Now I want to back up real quick. I just want you to notice a few things. When you look at Leviticus chapter 2, you're looking at the grain offering. One of the, the, the things that stick out the most, and I want you to, to keep these in your mind because they're going to follow us through the rest of the message. When you look at the meal offering, notice what he says in verse 1. He says, whenever you offer a grain offering to the Lord. Now the word offer and offering, to me, I was like, interesting. I'm looking for little nuggets that stick out. I want to know why God uses certain words. So what I did was I went and looked up the word offer and offering literally have the connotation of this. 
The first word offering, I'm sorry, offer, when anyone offers, I hope I'm not getting the Hebrew word wrong. I think it's the word karab. It literally means when someone draws near to the Lord. When you give an offering, you draw near to the Lord. In order for you to give an offering, you have to draw near to God. As far as God is concerned, there's no way you can give an offering without getting closer to Him. Now that got me excited. (laughs) All right? There's no way you can give an offering without getting closer to God. Now, last week we looked at the burnt what? The burnt offering. And last week I showed you that the word the word burnt in the Hebrew is the word olah, which literally means something that ascends to God. As far as God is concerned, every time you give a burnt offering, you are ascending above whatever problem you're in. Every time you give a burnt offering, no matter what dark area you might be in, you're always rising up with the glory of God on you. You're going higher. And even the Jews, they say this, whenever someone would give a burnt offering, their spiritual life ascends and goes higher than it was before. But again, the word offering is attached to it, literally meaning every time you gave a burnt offering for us on this side of the cross, every time you say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ, what happens is this, you're getting closer and closer. Now, let me say this. It doesn't mean we get closer to God because we are as close to God as you will ever be. You can't get any closer. Literally, Paul says you and God are so close that he says this is such a mystery. The best way I can explain it is this. When a man and woman, when a man leaves his father and mother, he joins himself to his wife. The two become one flesh. That's how close you are to God. You are one. There is no distinction between the two. You and God are one. As far as God is concerned, as Christ is, so are who? In this world. God doesn't see you and then see Jesus. When God looks at you, God sees Jesus because you and Christ are one. When God looks at Jesus, God sees you and me. So you are one. No, I don't have a gallon on that. But the point I'm trying to make is this. You can't get any closer to God than what you already are. All your imperfections and failures and all you, you and Christ are one. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So anyways, he says this, he shall offer, his offering shall be a fine flour. Now fine flour means you have to take the grain, you have to beat it and press it and beat it and press it and grind it and grind it. Before you can bring anything to God, he says this, I want the flour to be fine. Can't be coarse. It must be fine. Meaning it's a picture of everything Jesus went through for you. In other words, don't come to me without what Jesus did. Don't come to me with what you have done. Come to me with what Jesus did. And I'll always respond to you. All right? It must be a fine flour. Now notice the uh, ingredient he puts here. He says he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. Now frankincense is such a strong smell. When we were in uh, Israel this last trip, when I was with them in Israel, uh, we went to an oil shop just off of Galilee, and they have a bunch of anointing oil boxes. Like, you know, buy three, you can get one, you know, at a discount. Buy two, get the third one. You know, little uh, discounts. And so when we were leaving uh, the Sea of Galilee, I went to the gift shop, and I actually was able to smell frankincense. I think I have one at home, too. And frankincense, uh, what they sell you is a little bit of a watered-down version. But when you look it up, you find out that frankincense at its root is a very strong smell. Now, the reason why is because whenever someone would die, they would put frankincense over the body to kill the smell, right? Now, knowing that frankincense is not something that you wear as a perfume or a cologne. You don't walk around smelling like death, all right? You use it for dead people. Keep in mind, when Jesus was born, the wise men, the magi, when they found him, they were king makers. When they found Jesus, imagine this. Jesus is at home with his parents. He's about two or three years old. All of a sudden, king makers show up at your door. They bring gold. They bring myrrh. You're so excited. Then they give you frankincense. (laughs) All right. Imagine that the next baby shower, someone brings a coffin. All right. Do you see how crazy that is? And yet, Jesus was the only human being born to die. 
He died so that you and I can say we will never die. And everyone said, Amen. all right. So when he was born, they literally brought him frankincense. Now, we, we all know the story. They came, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But keep in mind, frankincense to them was much different from what it is for us today. They used that to cover the, the smell of death. And God says, when you come to me, I want the smell of death on it. Because I want to smell what my son did for you. That's what I want. I want to smell what my son did. So again, you have oil, frankincense, and then you have fine flour. Now, one thing that's going to change is frankincense is not on every single uh, presentation of the grain offering. Oil is always mentioned. And flour, obviously, because it's the, it's, it's, that's what the offering is. But let me tell you this. When it comes to the, uh, to, the, to the meal offering or the grain offering, let me say this. There's four different ways you can bring it to God. Now, I'm not going to tell you all those right now. I'll tell you those later towards the end. But I'm saving it. When you see this, pick up at verse 2. It says, he shall bring this offering to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take a handful of fine flour and oil and frankincense, with all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it on, I'm sorry, the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar. An offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And what does the next verse say? The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It's most holy, it is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. Now let me show you the picture. When a sinner comes to him, he says, this is my grain offering. Okay? The priest literally sticks his hand in, takes a handful. The rest of it, he takes home. He takes the handful out from the, out from the bag and he goes to the altar and he puts it on the altar and he burns it. Are you with me? He burns it. God accepts that handful and says, the rest of it is holy to me. Now, for all of us, it's a picture of Jesus coming from us. God saying, only one of you has to be judged for the rest of you. Only one of you has to have the sickness for the rest of you. Only one of you has to endure the hardship for the rest of you. The rest of you don't have to endure it. Only one of you has to feel the fire on their flesh. The rest of you don't have to. Now, what does that tell for all of us on this side of the cross? Only one of us had to be sick. Only one of us had to endure death. Only one of us had to endure poverty. Only one of us had to endure all of those things. So the rest of us, we don't have to. Isn't that exciting? Oh, man. If you're not excited yet, you will be soon. I think. All right. Now, when you look at Jesus, let me say this. This is the only offering that there is no blood. Of all the offerings, this is the only one that doesn't have any blood mentioned. Now, you know why that's important? Because blood speaks of death. As far as God is concerned, he doesn't want you to think about death when you come with the grain offering. He wants you to come and notice the life of Jesus. Now, when you look at the life of Jesus, let me say this. There can be no leaven in this offering. And leaven speaks of sin. So we know that Jesus was sinless. We know that he never committed sin in his entire life. But when you look at Jesus, and all of us want to be like him, I want you to be like him. Jesus lived a perfect life. But how did he live a perfect life? In what way was Jesus perfect? Now, the easy answer is to say, well, Jesus never sinned. He never made a mistake. He never made, you know, he never gave in to temptation. That's the easy answer. But you know what? When you look at Jesus, keep in mind, last week we saw in John chapter 1, John said, in the Greek, John said, Jesus interpreted God. Right? Jesus interpreted God. Before Jesus, God was not correctly interpreted, right? But after Jesus, all of a sudden we can know what God is like. So when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Now, one of my favorite stories, and I didn't want to have too many slides this morning, so I didn't put it up here. But one of my favorite stories is in Mark chapter 4 and 5. Do you know how Mark chapter 4 opens up? Jesus gets into a boat and he starts preaching. And at the end of his message, he looks at his disciples and he says, all right, let's cross over to the other side. 
Now, let me tell you what just happened. He gets in a boat and he gives them the word of God. Do you know on the night of his betrayal, he said this, these words I speak to you, they are life. And then he says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As he's preaching, every time he preaches, you know what he's doing? He's giving people what will separate them from the rest of the world. So he gives them the word. After that, he gets in a boat and says, let's go to the other side of Galilee. And we were there. When you all go to Israel, and you all will. And everyone said, when you all go to Israel, you will cross over the Sea of Galilee. So he crosses over the Sea of Galilee and he's tired, so he goes to sleep. When he falls asleep, all of a sudden a storm comes up and the disciples panic. They realize that the storm is going to overtake them and kill them if they're not, if a miracle doesn't happen. They turn around to make sure everyone's working and guess who's the only person that's not working is? Jesus. So they go and they wake him up and say, don't you care that we die? Jesus gets up and you know what he does? He says, peace, be still. He calms the storm and then he calms them. He gives them protection. Then he gives them peace. I love it. What has he done first? First, he gives the word. He gives protection. Then he gives peace. When the boat lands on the other side of at Gadar, the, the demoniac of, the, of Gadar literally runs to him and says, we know who you are. You've come to judge us. He says, what's your name? And the demons from inside him say, our name is Legion, for we are many. Then they say, please don't, don't judge us before our time. Permit us to go to the pigs. Jesus says one word, go. All the demons run. What did he just do? He gave this man freedom. Now, when he finishes, he gets back in the boat, crosses over to the other side. All this is in Mark chapter 4 and 5. And scholars tell us all of this happened in one day, 24 hours. When he crosses to the other side, all of a sudden a man named Jairus, a leader of the temple, runs to him and says, Lord, come and help my daughter because she's sick. But if you lay hands on her, she will live. He says, all right, I'll go. On his way there, a woman with an issue of blood for, do you know how long? 12 years. For 12 years runs and she touches the hem of his garment and she gets healed. Last night when I was meditating on this, the Lord said this. Notice, I gave the word. I gave protection. I gave peace. I gave deliverance or freedom. But when this woman came, he didn't give it consciously. And yet he said this. You don't have to ask me for everything to receive. Sometimes you just take what you need because I'm giving it anyways. So the woman comes behind him by faith. She touches the hem of his garment and he gives her healing. After that, he goes to Jairus' house and they tell him, Jairus, don't waste his time anymore. Your, your daughter's already dead. But when he arrives at the house, what does he do? He gives the daughter back to her parents. In fact, if you look at that story in particular, and I probably should have put it up. If you look at that story, it doesn't say he raised her to life and then left. It says he raised her to life and then he gave her back. If you're looking at just this story alone, what do we see about Jesus? That he never stops giving. Have you ever spent time with someone that's just perfect, like across the board? They are just so perfect. They never make a mistake. Has anyone ever been with anyone? I'm the only one. You've all, I'm the only one who's ever spent time with someone that it seems like they never make a mistake and you just hate spending time with them. You've never. Okay, let me ask you this. You ever been with a Christian? Okay, let's just get personal. Have you ever been with a Christian that when everyone else is listening to the music, they, I can't listen to it. When everyone else is talking, they, I can't say it. When everyone else says, hey, we're all hanging out, I can't go because I'm so holy. I have to, I'm so, have you ever seen anyone like that? Okay. Are they fun to be around? Are they enjoyable? Do they draw you into their presence? Absolutely not. If the truth was known, perfection does not draw people. Perfection repels people. Perfection pushes people away. And yet Jesus, as perfect as he was, people didn't run from him. They ran to him. 
What is it about Jesus's perfection that draws people to him? You know what I believe it was? Mark chapter four and five. I'm telling you, go home and study those two chapters for yourself. His perfection didn't push people away. It made people come closer. You know why? Because he never stopped giving. He never stopped giving. He never stopped. When he was tired, after he preached a sermon on a boat, he said, I'm sleepy, I want to go to sleep. They woke him up and he didn't say, why did you wake me up? Did you not have enough faith? Let me preach again (laughs) to give you faith. He didn't do that. You know what he did? He calmed the storm and he gave them peace. He never stops giving. Jairus lost faith. His daughter's dead. He won't let him say the words out of his mouth. He says, don't say another word, Jairus. She will live. He goes to Jairus' house, raises her back up. And then the Bible is so particular. He gave her back to her parents. Why? Because Jesus never stops giving. His perfection is marked by how much he gives. By how much he gives. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. I mean, this is off notes. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. Hey, if you will forgive people, pray for people, love people and do good to people who use you for their own purpose, who speak evil of you, who persecute you, who do everything they can to hurt you. If you will be loving, kind, forgiving, gracious to those people, you will be, you know, the word he uses perfect like your father in heaven. Why? Because his perfection is marked by how much he gives, not by how far he stays away from everyone else. <laughs> and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Now look at this. When it comes to his perfection, again, it draws people in because he's always giving. Look at this in Numbers 23. In Numbers 23. When you talk about perfection, understand this. Because again, the grain offering speaks of his life, how perfect Jesus was. When you talk about perfection, there's two aspects to perfection. Number one is how God sees you. And number two is how you see yourself. So let's start with number one, how God sees you. In Numbers 23, there's a story of Balaam and Balak. And I don't know if you saw the uh, uh, Bible study we did on Facebook. Did anyone see that? A few of us? Okay, cool. We mentioned uh, the story of Balaam and Balak in that Bible study on Facebook. If you don't know the story, let me give you the very brief version, Matthew's paraphrased version. The children of Israel are walking through the wilderness. And all of a sudden, the king, Balak, sees them coming. And Balak says this, if they come and they pass through our territory, they'll drink all our water, they'll eat all our food. We don't want them anywhere near our people. So what he does is he calls a man who is known to curse people, and it works, a warlock. All right? So he calls a man named Balaam, and he says, look, we'll give you all this gold. We'll make you so wealthy if you'll just come and speak evil against God's people. So Balaam sees the gold, and he says, I'm sold. Let's do it. So he gets on a donkey, and he goes. Now, I'm skipping a lot of details. But on the way there, the donkey sees an angel standing in the road. The donkey sees the angel with a sword ready to kill, and the donkey diverts. Balaam gets mad, hits the donkey. So the angel moves further down the road. Again, he gets on the donkey, and the donkey sees the angel draw his sword again. The donkey diverts. Balaam gets angry and hits the donkey again. Finally, the third time, the donkey sees the angel, and they're both about to die, because once the angel swings, they're both gone. And all of a sudden, the donkey diverts, and he crushes his leg, and Balaam gets off and says, you stupid animal. I'm paraphrasing. This is Matthew's sanctified church version. You stupid animal. And he gets ready to beat him again, and all of a sudden, God opens the mouth of the donkey. And the donkey says, did you not see the angel? (laughs) I'm saving your life. And Balaam, not surprised, the donkey speaking, says, what? What angel? What are you talking about? Then he sees the angel of the Lord. And the angel says this, that donkey saved your life. 
There's, there, I could go about five different ways with that. <laughs> that donkey saved your life. He said this, if you were to try and speak evil, it would have cost you everything because you can never curse God's people. He said this, but I want you to go. And when you open your mouth, I'll tell you what to say. So Balaam goes. And when he arrives, Balak says, are you ready to curse the children of Israel? And Balaam says, I can only say what God tells me to say. After the last encounter, right? <laughs> I can only say what God permits me to say. So he goes up and he gets ready to curse God's people. And as he opens his mouth, God turns the curse into a blessing in his mouth. Every time he gets ready to curse God's people, God won't let him curse. Let me say this. People might speak evil against you. But every time a curse is spoken against you, every time someone spoke evil over you, every time, even if you deserved it, every time someone spoke evil against you, Solomon said this in Proverbs, a curse that should not be does not rest on the person it was sent to. Instead, like a sparrow, it turns around and goes back to the one who sent it. Every time someone said, you're always this, or you always do that. Every time someone spoke, let me say this, they better be careful what they say against you. Because every curse against you turns on the person who sent it. So God turns the curse into a blessing. Now, the second time, I think it's the second time he tries to curse God's people. We see right here in Numbers 23, verse 18. It says, then Balaam took up his oracle and said, rise up, Balak, and hear, listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent or change his mind. Has he said or will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received the command to bless. He has blessed and I can, I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him and the shout of the king is among him, among them. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox, for there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, oh, what God has done. Now, watch this. Look at verse 21 one more time. God has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. Does he say there is no iniquity in Israel? No. What does he say? God has not observed it. And then what does he say? He's not seen wickedness. He didn't say that there wasn't any wickedness. (laughs) He says that God hasn't seen it. Do you know at the time that he's saying this out of his mouth, the children of Israel are clueless to what's going on. They're actually in a valley and Balaam is on a cliff looking at God's people, trying to curse them. And in the valley, when he said God has not observed, God has not seen. The moment he's saying that, do you know what scholars tell us was actually happening in that moment? You know what they say? They say in the valley, Israel said, we are tired of this worthless bread. And they're kicking it. And God sent snakes in to attack them. The very moment God is punishing his people, dealing with them. Balaam, out of of his own mouth, is saying, God has not seen it. God has not observed it. Now, why is that so? Well, it's not just funny. Why is that so interesting? Because as far as God is concerned, perfection is not that you don't sin. Perfection in God's eyes is that he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. All my sin, all my failures, all the times I chose to do the wrong thing. He's not saying that you're perfect, that you don't do it. He's saying that he hasn't seen it. Now, how can he say that? Because at the cross, he saw your entire lifetime. And at the cross, he put your lifetime of sin into the body of his son. And Jesus died with a lifetime of Matthew Edwards' sin. So that now he can look at me and say, I've not seen it. You see, when the world looks at you, they say, how can you call yourself? How can you say that you're, how can you act like this? And you say this, how can you call yourself a Christian when you 
Listen to this. How can you call yourself a Christian when you got mad and yelled at this person on the road? How can you say that you're a believer when you do this? And yet, as far as God is concerned, he says, I haven't seen it. I haven't even observed it. And the very next word says what? The Lord is God is with him. The shout of the king is among them. Look how he closes this oracle. This is the second of four. Look how he closes in verse 23. For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It must now be said of Jacob. Listen, it must now be said of you, sinner church. Oh, what God has done. Even when you don't act like it, the world must look at you and say, oh, what God has done. They mu- your co-workers must look at you and say, oh, what God has done. You don't act like it. You're right. But there is no curse that can stand on you. There is no divination that can work against you. You see, in America, we don't say, I curse you. You know, we don't, we don't throw all the things. We don't, we don't do that. But you know what we do in America? We've changed our words so much that our words, we don't even realize that many times we say, man, you're always like, you always act like this. You always do this. You, you're just that type of person. And we don't think it's a curse. But as far as Jesus is concerned, when he looked at the fig tree, he didn't say, I curse you. Die, die in the name of Jesus, in my, in my name. He didn't say that. You know what he said? You'll never bear fruit again. That was all it took. How many times has anyone spoken something against you that they should not have said? And yet, as far as God's concerned, they will turn around and say, oh, what God has done. And everyone says, Amen. Again, it's not that you don't sin. It's that God doesn't see it. Look at this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with Christ, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. And let me, let me say this. Don't mistake what he's about to say. When he says, this is a faithful saying, he says, for or because if we died with Jesus, we shall also live with him. How do we die with him? At the cross. At the cross, his death was ours. So if you receive Christ, you have died, to, you have died with him. And you've been raised with him. So if you die with him, you'll also live with him. He says, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Hey, stand strong in the faith. You will reign. You will reign. He says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Now watch this. He's quoting from the Savior himself, who said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you. But the same Savior who said, I will deny you. You know what that Savior did? After he was resurrected, he said, go tell Peter I'm alive. Go tell Peter who denied me, I'm alive. And on the day of Pentecost, that same Savior who said, if you deny me, I will deny you. Now on this side of the cross is saying, hey, Peter, you be the mouthpiece that brings 3,000 into the kingdom at one time. (laughs) Are you with me? So he says, what? If we deny him, he will deny us. But in verse 13, if we are faithless, if we lose faith, if we start doubting and believing that he really will do it, If we start doubting that he really will heal me, if we start doubting that he really will provide, if we start doubting, if we start losing faith that Jesus is who he says he is, that he will do what he said he will do. If I stop losing hope in this right here, let me say this. When Matthew Edwards is faithless, Jesus is still faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. The the measure of his grace that the blood has made it so crazy, so insane that even when you lose faith, he will always be faithful. You see, that's why, that's why we say this, and we're very careful. I've, I've only heard one other pastor say this. Even when you lose faith, he will still be faithful to you. He is bound by his word to heal you. He's bound by his word to save you. He is bound by himself. You see, God is not faithful to me. He's faithful to his son. 
And because he's faithful to his son, he has no choice because Jesus paid it. He has no choice but to give it to me. He has no choice but to give it to you. And everyone said, amen. The measure of his grace. Huh. Now, this is how God sees us. But what about how you see yourself? Hebrews chapter 10, and we're on the down end of this. Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 1, I believe the Apostle Paul is the author. He goes on to say this. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Now watch this. He's saying every year they made a sacrifice. Every year they made one sacrifice for sin. That means 364 days when they sinned, they didn't do what we do. They didn't say, oh God, forgive me for that sin, because they couldn't. The Holy Spirit was not inside them. The Holy Spirit was tucked away inside of a tent. So you know what they did? Every time they would sin, they would say, oh, oh well. And then they would sin the next day, oh well. And they would sin the next day, and they'd say, oh well. And then on the Day of Atonement, on that one day out of 365 days, on that one day, you know what they would do? They would bring a sacrifice to the, to the tabernacle, and there they would say, hey, uh, I sinned. Essentially, God forgive me for my sin. The sacrifice would die and they would receive forgiveness. Now, if they could only, if they only needed to ask for forgiveness one time a year, why do we preach you have to ask for forgiveness every second of the day? (laughs) Was the blood of bulls and goats stronger than the blood of Jesus? Because it gave them forgiveness for an entire year. And yet we act like the blood of Jesus only gives us forgiveness till our next sin. Are you with me? So watch this. He says this in verse one. He says, hey, the law was it had a shadow of the good things to come. Are you ready for the good things? Let me show you the good things and not the very image of the things. It can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually every single year, make those who approach perfect. Now, God wants you to be perfect. But how does he want you to be perfect? How does he want you to see yourself in perfection? For then would they not have ceased to have been offered? If you were made perfect, you never have to offer it again. If they were perfect by offering that sacrifice, then they would not have had to continually offer it. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. In fact, oh, before I said, look at verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. God's understanding of perfection is not what you do. It's what you perceive in your conscience. In your heart, do you know that you sinned? Because if you did, you have to run back. Every time you know you did something wrong, you have to run back. You have to run back. And God is saying, I want you to be so oblivious, so lost to the idea of what sin is, that you don't even think about it. That you are so appreciative of what my son did, that sin is not even something you think about. In fact, watch this in verse 4. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Skip down to verse 10. He says, by that will, by the will of God that Christ should come and that Christ should die, by the will that, by his will, we have been sanctified or made holy or separated through the offering of Jesus. There's that word offering. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Every day they had to make the same sacrifice for the people. The people only made it once a year. The priest made it every day. <laughs> then he says in verse 12, but this man, Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, 
from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. (laughs) Perfection is not what you do. It has nothing to do with your actions. It has everything to do with what Jesus did to you. You are not perfect because you don't make the mistake. You are perfect because God doesn't see your failures. God doesn't see your failure. You see, when you, when, when you bring the grain offering to the Lord, he sees the life of Jesus. Not so much the death. He sees the life of Jesus. And he says, hmm, Jesus lived a perfect life. Then he must get the perfect reward. But at the cross, he didn't get the perfect reward. He got the perfect punishment so that now you will always get the perfect reward. Ha! Hallelujah. That's why, listen, that's why run to him. Run to him. His perfection is marked by giving to you. He's perfect because he gives to you. So when you run to him, say, Jesus, give me more. Jesus, give me more. Heavenly Father, give me more. Well, you have enough. I don't have enough. I'll never have enough until I say I've had enough. He'll keep giving until you say you've had enough. When he fed 5,000, the food kept coming until they said, we're done. He said, all right. But by that point, they already had 12 basketfuls waiting to be given out. So they took him home. Oh, man. Are you with me? You just keep going back to him. Just keep going back to him. Because the grain offering says, it's my life that was waiting for the reward. Let me say this. If you had money in the bank that somebody gave you, all you had to do was claim it. Would you go? Would you go? Then I want you to see the reward of Jesus, the grain offering. I want you to see it the same way. There is a reward that's waiting to be claimed. It's waiting for you to claim it. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Now let me bring this to a close. In Leviticus chapter 2, back to Leviticus, and we'll close with this. In Leviticus chapter 2, look what happens. We saw that whenever the sinner comes, he brings a, a, a bag of flour, fine flour, and the priest takes his hand in and he sprinkles it. And I put these words in gold, but I want you to just skip those for a second. It says, and if you bring, an, if you bring as an offering, a grain offering baked in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil. There's oil again. Or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. But if your offering is a grain offering baked in a pan, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. Oil again. He says, if your offering is a grain offering baked in a covered pan, it shall be made of fine flour with, what's that word? Oil. Oil speaks of the Holy Spirit. It speaks of the Holy Spirit. All right. But watch this. In verse 13, if you keep reading, you go down to verse 13. It says this. God says, in every offering of your grain offering, you shall season with what? You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings... You shall offer salt. (laughs) He says, let me tell you about all the offerings. Oh, and by the way, let me say this. Never come to me without salt. Every time you make an offering, bring salt. Now, why does God want salt a part of his offering? God conceals for his glory, but it's for our glory to reveal it. Do you know that Paul says, hey, let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with what? Salt. Salt. That means grace and salt are types and shadows of one another. When you add salt, when you add grace to the picture, God is saying, don't ever come to me without grace. Now, why in this way? Because his life of giving was marked by grace. Was there ever one time Jesus said to a leper, what have you done to deserve this cleansing? This cleansing. Yeah, that was country. (laughs) Was there ever one time Jesus looked at Jairus and said, 
Jairus, what have you done to receive your daughter back? Was there ever one time he looked at the 5,000 and said, all those who are deserving of free food, step in, step in the line over here, and everyone else? <laughs> he never did that. He never asked anyone, did you deserve it? He never asked anyone, what have you done? Are you worthy for it? Are you worthy of it? He never did that. And yet in the church, again, we have been teaching and preaching what? If you do good, then God will bless you. But when you're bad, it's no wonder you're going through all these problems. And yet Jesus never asked anyone, what have you done? In fact, one time they came to him and said, Jesus, was it his fault that he was born blind? Or was it his parents' fault he was born blind? And Jesus looked at them and said, paraphrasing, you idiots. (laughs) Stop trying to figure out whose fault it is. And let the glory of God manifest on his life. Stop trying to find out why. And let's just get it done. (laughs) Then he turned to the man and said, oh, I can't remember if he put one of those. It doesn't matter. He healed the man. The man can see. That's what matters. He marked his perfection by giving. The same John who said God is love is the same one who recorded him saying, for God so loved the world. He did what? He gave. That same John who recorded that, that, that message, that conversation, God so loved, God gave. Went on later on to say, interpreting Jesus. Hey, guess what? (laughs) God is love. Therefore, God is always giving. And everyone said, let me close with this. You must always have salt part of your offering. Let me close with this. When you look at these three, we looked at the first, uh, we're looking at these three and there's four types. I told you in the beginning, there's four ways you can bring a grain offering. And we'll close with this. In Leviticus 2, verse 4, he says, if you, if you bring as an offering, a grain offering baked in an oven. When I saw this, the Lord said, son, I want you to see the picture in your head. Use your imagination. So I want you to use your imagination this morning, all right? Baked in an oven. Back then, if you've ever been to, uh, um, is it fuel pizza? If you've ever been to fuel pizza, whenever they make the pizza, they stick it in the oven, but there's no door that closes. It's like a brick oven, right? Have you, have you, have you ever been to fuel pizza? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. There's no door on the oven. Likewise, back then there was no door on an oven. When they put the food or they put the bread in to bake it, you could see it. Now the Lord said this, when I saw the image, he said, notice when it's baked in an oven, the heat is coming. You can see the heat behind it, but the food is there, right? You can see the food, but you can't so much see the heat as much. What does this speak of? It speaks of what Jesus went through internally that no one else saw. In Colossians, the Bible says that God nailed the handwritten code to the cross. He nailed the Ten Commandments to the cross. So if that's the case, no one saw the Ten Commandments being nailed. And yet in the spirit, God nailed the handwritten code to the cross. So right here in the oven speaks of what you could not see with your physical eyes. Yet he still suffered. In verse five, if your offering is a grain offering baked in a pan, baked in a pan, another word is also seared in a pan. When you put the, uh, when you put food on a pan like chicken, right? And you let it sit on the pan for a little too long, what happens to the bottom? It starts to burn, it looks what? It looks a little black, right? Uh, if you put liquid in there, it starts to burn on the outside, you have to scrape it off in the pan. Alright? Literally the word seared, the word baked can also be the word seared in a pan. So what does it speak of? What we can visibly see at the cross, because it's not covered. You can see him at the cross with all the stripes, all the wounds, all the blood coming down. It speaks of what happened internally. And then this speaks of what happened externally, what you can see. God is saying, I want you to get the full picture. And watch this. If your offering is a grain offering baked in a covered pan, verse seven, baked in a covered pan. What does that mean? In darkness, when no one could see him because there was total darkness, the sun was blotted out by the clouds. And all of a sudden, in the darkness, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? (laughs) 
What do you see? Baked in a covered pan where no one can see. You see, baked in an oven, we can kind of get an idea of what's going on. Seared on top of the pan, we all see what's happening. But when it's covered and no one can see, only God knows the true depth of the cost it took to save you. Only God knows the true cost of what it took to heal you, to set you free. Only God knows the cost. And one day in heaven, I believe the darkness will move. And in that moment, we will get to see what Jesus went through. In that moment, we will fully appreciate the fullness of what he did. But for right now, it was covered in a pen. It was hidden from all of us. Oh, man, the grain offering. I'm telling you, you know, last week, the whole thing was this. When you say you're the righteousness of God in Christ, but this week the Lord said, I want you to appreciate what Jesus did. Now, let me say this statement and I'll close. When you look at the grain, I said there were four. I'll tell you the other one later. It's about vegetables. He said, when you have a first fruit, again, you're to put salt with the oil and you come and you present it before the Lord. That's a story for another time. But when you look at this, when you look at something that's baked in an oven, after you bake something in the oven, what do you do? Think about it. When you have a cake and you bake it in the oven, you take it out. What do you do? Okay, you let it cool down, but what's the, what's the end game? You eat it. You eat it, right? Now, hold on, hold on. Who eats this? The Lord said, the Lord said, watch this. He said, the sinner comes with the flour, but the priest, what does the priest do? He takes a handful, throws it on this, but he has to make the offering for you. You see, when it comes to the burnt offering, you kill the lamb. You're responsible for his death. But the priest spreads the blood for you. The priest does the hard part. You have to kill it. All right. When it comes to his death, you own up to what you did. He'll take care of the rest. All right. But when it comes to the grain, you bring the flour. The priest takes care of the rest. So the priest, after he takes his handful, he goes home and says, let's bake. (laughs) When he bakes it, what does he do? He eats it. When it comes to what's, what's seared or baked on a pan, after you cook it on the pan, what do you do? You eat it. And the very last one. Baked in a covered pan. I don't care, whatever you do. My wife made a crock pot chicken like a while back, or a pot roast. Oh, it was good. When she finished it, you know what I did? You ate it. No, let's not over-spiritualize this. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. And I'm saying this, this could be the most powerful thing we say all day. Enjoy it. The Lord said, son, the offering was for you to enjoy. Enjoy it. He said, it's not enough for you to just be sad because of what Jesus did. Yes, now get up and enjoy it. (laughs) He did it for you. Now enjoy it. You bake it. You sear it. You put it in a pan so that you can eat it and enjoy it. If you don't enjoy what Jesus did, you missed the point. And for that, he said this. What are you enjoying? How perfect he was. So when you are imperfect, say, oh, I still get to enjoy his perfection. I still get to enjoy the reward. I said this earlier and I'll say this. Who gets the reward of his perfection? He didn't. He lived a perfect life. And when the reward was supposed to come, instead of going to heaven, he went where? Hell for all of us. So that now, in your imperfection, you can enjoy the reward. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we thank you this morning for the offering. Lord, we thank you for the grain offering. Father, we thank you that we, this week, this week, we will begin enjoying the reward of his perfection. Father, I ask that this week, even when we're not thinking about it, that you would slap everyone in here 
with an amazing reward that Jesus deserves for living a perfect life. And Father, I ask even more so that it would manifest more, that your grace would manifest more when we are imperfect the most this week. I thank you, Father, that your grace superabounds where our sin increases. So, Father, when the words slip out that shouldn't slip out this week, when our attitude turns away that it shouldn't this week, I ask that your grace would superabound in that area. I ask that your unmerited favor would superabound in those moments this week. And, Father, this week, this week, may we enjoy the reward of Christ's perfection. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And Father, as where restoration needs to happen, let it happen. Let it happen. Where something has been broken because of what we did, may the reward, reward of restoration manifest even this week in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And Father, I declare again, we said it at the beginning, I'll say it again. I declare that the reward of youthfulness is manifesting on our church, on everyone, even our children, (laughs) even our children, Father. I thank you that the reward of youthfulness is manifesting on everyone in here, our physical bodies, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen? Amen. Can you stand to your feet? Just lift your hands. Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centercharlotte at gmail.com or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.